0: Good morning, starting from chapter 9, page 340. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighbouring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement and my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. "O my God, I am too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you. My God, because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers until now, our sin has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins, and he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, O our God, what can we say after this? For we have disregarded the commands you gave through your servants the prophets when you said. The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with their impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and given—sorry—and uh, have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord, God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping, and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up, This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water, because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. Amen.
1: We should uh, come before God in prayer as we, uh, before we uh, turn to his word. So let's bow in prayer, shall we? Gracious God, we thank you for giving us uh, your word. We thank you that your word is uh, light and life to us. Uh, We pray, Father God, that as we consider your word and as the children uh, study your word next door, that uh, you would be enlightening the darkness of our uh, minds and our souls, that uh, you would be filling us with your light, that uh, we would walk in your ways. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, put your hand up if you have ever baked a loaf of bread. We have got a few uh, bread bakers here amongst us, so I need to be careful with what I say, don't I? Um, That I don't display too much uh, pretended expertise. But uh, you may uh, resonate with a particular verse in the Bible, the one that says that a little 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 bit of yeast works through the whole batch of, how's that finish? Dough. A little bit of yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now, I've never baked a loaf of bread in my entire life, but uh, what I learned from Wikipedia is this, that uh, yeast is a fungus, and it's a fungus which, uh, which comes to life uh, when, it's added to, when when you add hot water. And uh, when it comes to life, it, it starts to kind of reproduce itself and it spreads through all of the dough. And, and as it spreads, I learnt this, is, which I found interesting. It, uh, it breaks down the carbohydrates in the flour, and one of the things which that produces is carbon dioxide. And the carbon dioxide spreads through the bread, and guess what that does? That makes the bread rise, and it gives it its all kind of fluffy, airy kind of uh, texture. So that's uh, baking bread, and. Um, you might ask, well, what's all this got to do with the Bible? Uh, well, uh, in the Bible, the yeast is a metaphor for, um, uh, in, in one place, for false teaching and in another place, it's a metaphor for sinu- sinful behaviour. Um, so think about it. Um, what happens in the church when we turn a blind eye to, um, to sin? in the church like for example immorality or greed or gossip or anger what what happens when we when we just turn a blind eye to those things well it spreads doesn't it um sin kind of gets a foothold and uh, one person if they're allowed to be sinning in a particular way then the next person thinks well he's doing it so it's okay for me and before you know it it's Well, as it says, a little bit of yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now, today we're going to wrap up our series on Ezra, which we've been looking at over the last one and a half months or so. And as we do that, we're going to see that this issue of a little bit of yeast working its way through the whole batch of dough, uh, in a negative sense, that that is exactly what had happened to God's people who had returned out of the exile in Babylon and had returned to Jerusalem. Now, they say, and I think it's true, that it's not how you start the race that counts, it's how you finish the race that counts. And uh, in Ezra, we've seen that the Jews who returned from the exile, they started their race pretty well, didn't they? Uh, I mean, as they, as they trekked back across the desert, uh, as they resettled in the land, what was their great passion? Their great passion was the honour and the glory of God, wasn't it? Their great passion was, was to be holy. Uh, their great passion was to rebuild the city, rebuild the temple so that God in all of his holiness would be honoured and glorified. That was their passion. And we saw that, uh, a couple of instances of that, for example, in chapter two of Ezra, uh, when the, there were were some people who returned who claimed that they were priests, but uh, their pedigree could not be proven. And so were they just simply allowed to serve at the altar? No not until it could be decided whether or not they were priests or not, because the holiness of God is at stake. Um, In chapter 4 of Ezra, remember when they started rebuilding the temple, there were some of the people who lived in the land already, who worshipped other gods, and they said to them, "Uh, we'd like to help you to rebuild the temple. Now, was that offer accepted? No, because these people were idolaters, because the holiness of God was at stake. That was their passion. That was their single-minded vision. That was what, uh, what, what gave them life. It was a passion for the holiness of God. Now, that was a great start. But when we get to the passage that uh, was read to us earlier, we see that at the, at the, at the final two chapters of Ezra, that the whole thing has now started to unravel. Um, The problem is spelt out in chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Let me read that for you if you'd like to follow on page 340. And, of course, there's an outline of the talk for you in your bulletins. Have a look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. It says, after these things had been done, that is, the temple had been established, the city had been rebuilt, everything was the way that they planned it to be. After It was good it was great the whole everything had been accomplished they had this beautiful building they had this beautiful city after these things had been done the leaders came to me that is to Ezra and they said the people of Israel including the priests and the levites have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Amorites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now, so do you see the problem? Jewish men... Uh, have married women who are not Jews and have started families. So why is that a problem? I mean, uh, is the Bible racist or something? What's what's going on here? Well, no, the Bible's not racist. Um, In fact, there are cases in the Old Testament where Hebrew men uh, married uh, Gentile women and were commended. At least they were not condemned for doing so. Uh, a good example of that uh, would be Boaz. Um, what was the name of the of the girl he married? She was called Ruth. And uh, Ruth, what what kind of a s or an, an it was Ruth? She was a she was a Moabite, one of the people listed here. But she was a godly Moabite. She was a, a Moabite who loved uh, the God of Israel. Um, you see, the issue here is that these were Gentile women who because of their their background, because of the families that they'd grown up in, the nations they'd grown up in, they followed the detestable practices of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Moabites, Egyptians and Amorites. Now here's something interesting. At the time of Ezra, some of those races, uh, some of those peoples didn't exist anymore. <laughs> um, uh, and in fact the the non-Jews who lived in the land were Assyrians. They were descendants of the Assyrians who had uh, uh, settled the land. The point is, they were people who worshiped the gods of those peoples. The gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Hittites, the gods of the Perizzites, and so on. Uh, Let me give you just one example of what that would have uh, looked like. Um, the god of the Moabites was the god Chemosh and uh, we read a bit about him in uh, Two Kings. Um, Chemosh uh, when people worshipped Chemosh uh, they would sometimes offer up uh, their children at the altar as a sacrifice to Chemosh. It's pretty gruesome isn't it? Do you reckon that the people of Israel, would ever involve themselves in Chemosh worship? I'll tell you this, Solomon did. The great King Solomon, he actually built a high place to Chemosh. And you know where he built it? He built it in the city of Jerusalem, right in the heart of Israel's worship. What was the cause of Solomon's downfall? It was because he married lots of women... Uh, You know, biblically, it's one man, one woman. He married lots of women, but the other factor is that he married women from, he married women who did not love the Lord, the God of Israel. He married women from these other nations who worshipped other gods, and they introduced uh, the worship of these other gods into, into Israel. And Solomon's heart was led astray. He started his race well, but he finished it well. he just barely crossed the line. He was half-hearted for God. So here in Ezra, um, these men had made the deliberate decision to share their lives of intimacy in marriage with women who, and to develop families with women who, who did not share a relationship with God. Who did not know God? Who did not love God? In fact, they loved idols. Um, if you flip over to the second half of chapter ten, uh, we see there uh, there is a whole long list of men who were doing this, and uh, you can see from that why we didn't ask anyone to read that uh, passage in church today. Although that could have been interesting to have done, I think. Uh, what do you reckon? But I want to make this point. Um, it seems like a very, lit- from a literary sense, that seems like not a particularly interesting way of finishing the whole book. But this is not just a meaningless list of complicated, difficult to pronounce Hebrew names. There's a good reason that this list is here, and what it tells us is that this sin had been spreading. It had been. Uh, like the yeast working through the whole batch of dough. It had been sprinting. There was a growing community of men who had disobeyed God in this way. And you know what it's like, don't you? You know, when someone else starts living in a particular way, then you know everyone else starts to starts to catch on and You know, before you know it, people just say, well, everyone else is doing it, so why shouldn't I? It becomes normal, it becomes acceptable, it becomes a part of the culture. Just a little bit of yeast is what the Bible says. And note also this, who was it who started it? Uh, What was the little bit of... Who was the little bit of yeast that uh, caused this problem? Well, if you go back to chapter 9, verse 2... Uh, The men who uh, started, uh, who led the way in this, they were not the fringe people of Israel. They were actually the leaders. They they were priests. They were Levites. Uh, They were the officials. And when anyone in leadership starts behaving in a sinful way, unrepentantly, then that becomes the model, that becomes the example. And it's no wonder that others follow suit. Uh, you can see why in the book of James uh, we are told that not many uh, from amongst you brothers should, uh, should um, presume to be teachers in God's church because those who teach will be judged more strictly. And there is a good reason for that because those who teach have more influence for good or for evil amongst God's people. Now, thankfully in verse 1 there were other leaders who were not like that. And they came to Ezra and they told him what was going on. Seems that Ezra was unaware of all of this. So how did Ezra respond? Well, in verse 3. Have a look at verse 3. In verse 3 it says he was appalled, that, that, he, that he tore his clothes, that he ripped out his hair, that he pulled his beard out in a dramatic demonstration of emotion to say how appalled he was to hear that this was happening. And then in verse 4, we're told that everyone who trembled at the words of God gathered around him. Now that's a great picture, isn't it? Because in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, who is the one whom God esteems? Uh, it is he who is humble and contrite in, in heart and who trembles at God's word. And so do we tremble at God's word? When we read God's word, do we take it seriously and do we allow it to convict us of our sin? Or are we flippant with regards to God's word? That's the picture here. Sin is spreading amongst God's people, but some people tremble at God's word. And then in chapter 9, verses 5, all the way through to 15, Ezra fell to his knees in prayer. Now, this is one of the great prayers of the Old Testament But I want to just summarise it by saying this, that in this prayer, Ezra basically says to God, we've blown it. We have really blown it. He says to God that the very reason that you sent our people into exile in Babylon in the first place was because we were idolaters, that we had sinned against you. But you have been so gracious you have been so merciful, way beyond, so forgiving, beyond that which we, would, we could deserve. You've allowed us to come back home. But what have we done? Exactly the same thing. We're back where we started. There's a very neat summary of this in um, verses 13 through to 14. You still with me? It's a hot day, isn't it? Is the air conditioner working okay for people? Terrific, good, excellent. Okay, let's have a look at verse 13. This is what Ezra says. He says, What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our guilt. That is, that's why we went to Babylon in the first place. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved, and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands? and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are because you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. Now there's something very striking about what Ezra praise and also the attitude of the people uh, in their response to this. And it is, and it, particularly with the other people, it is the sense of corporate responsibility for what's happened. For example, have a look at v- uh, chapter 10, verse 2. We're introduced to a fellow by the name of Shechaniah, the son of Jehieliel, one of the descendants of Elam. And this is what he said to Ezra. He said, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us but in spite of this there's still hope for Israel. Another funny thing about that is when you have a look at the list in chapter, at the end of chapter 10, Shechaniah is not mentioned as being one of the people who's been unfaithful. What it seems that he's doing, representing the people is accepting some sort of corporate responsibility for the sin. Now why is that the case? Why should Uh, someone someone else accept responsibility uh, even though they haven't gone and married uh, idol-worshipping women. It seems to me that perhaps it's because they have tolerated the sin in the community. Um, Think about it this way. Uh, A situation that I mm, am aware of where for, for many years, a member of a church had been uh, sinning uh, in a particular way, and it was um, allegedly, and uh, and it was chronic uh, behaviour. And uh, eventually, the elders of the church uh, spoke to this person and uh, challenged the person to to stop behaving in this way and offered to help the person to stop behaving in that way, but uh, because of the response, uh, eventually they had to ask the person to step down from a variety of ministry roles uh, within the church. Now, you've got to say that that would not be a particularly easy thing to do, and it may not necessarily be a popular thing to do either. Um, But uh, one of the church members came and spoke to one of the elders and uh, and said this and said, actually, we're all guilty. Uh, He said, we're all responsible because for many years we have witnessed uh, this damaging behaviour and we've just turned a blind eye um, we've we've tolerated it. Uh, we've not done anything. Nobody has has spoken up until now. And so this person was saying, we're all responsible. We're all culpable, because we haven't acted as a church family should. We've tolerated sin uh, in this person and we should have actually helped this person a long time ago. And the most helpful thing to do would be to say, hey, you're actually doing the wrong thing, and you need to change. There's a sense of corporate responsibility. And uh, we see here the action that uh, Ezra and the godly leaders then took. Um, In chapter 10, the leaders put a proposal to Ezra. Now, it's not Ezra that... uh, proposes this it's the leaders who say to him this is what we think should happen Uh, have a look at verse 3 chapter 10 they say now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God let it be done according to the word to the law Now, that's dramatic action, isn't it? You get the picture there? Um, uh, In order to right the wrong, what they're proposing is that uh, all of these wives uh, should be sent back uh, and their children should be sent back to their own families. Um, That's dramatic, isn't it? Uh, But the issue here is the purity of God's people. Remember, the problem wasn't that they were foreigners, the problem was that they were introducing false religion into the spiritual life of Israel. And repentance required that that should be fixed. Um, It sounds like a uh, tough uh, solution to the problem, to us. But in fact, to send them back was an appropriate action uh, in the Old Testament law because In the law of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, verses 6 through to 11, if a wife enticed her husband to idolatry, you know what the penalty for that was? It was? Death by stoning. Now, it seems that by sending these women who worshipped idols back, what it does is it achieves two things. Firstly, it regains the purity of Israel. But secondly, it also recognises the culpability of the men who married them. It's saying It's not, not entirely the fault of these women. It's the fault of these Jewish men who went and married them to be their, their wives. So there's a merciful response in simply sending the women back to their own families. And indeed, as the book ends, all of those men are named and shamed. That's how the book ends. Uh, Verse 44, all these had married foreign women and some of them had children by these wives. Imagine that. Uh, Imagine having your name uh, written in scripture uh, for all to see uh, forever. And this is because of the importance of holiness within God's people. Now, um, what are the implications of this? Let me uh, just finish the sermon and finish the series by making a few comments to draw things together. The first first thing I want to say is this, that uh, what Ezra teaches us is that despite the fact that God had uh, rescued them from exile, brought them back into Uh, into the land that in a spiritual sense they they are still in exile in in, in one sense Uh, because God God had been merciful. Now they had a, a fresh start, they had a new city they had a new temple but it just did not take very long for sin to gain a foothold again. It's the same old story isn't it? In fact, if you uh, look at the Old Testament, the the Old Testament, the story of the Old Testament is like a circle that just goes round and round and round and round whereby uh, Israel sins against God, God punishes Israel, Israel cries out to God confessing their sins and seeking his help, God then saves Israel, everything is all right for a while, then Israel sins again, and then God punishes them and then they cry out to God for help and then God saves them and then they sin again and it goes round and round and round and round like that. Particularly in the book of Judges I've noticed. It's just this, this cycle that just seems to be never ending. And, uh, and what we see here is that uh, the cycle is still continuing over and over again. And what it tells us Uh, Right at the very end of the Old Testament, because historically Ezra comes at the end of the Old Testament, what it tells us is that something new is needed, something different, something not the old covenant, but a new covenant. And what is needed is Jesus. You see, we all need a fresh start in life, don't we? Because of our sin, uh, we too are subject to God's judgment. But we can have that fresh start through the death of Jesus and through the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit uh, who gives us a new heart, a new spirit, a new life so that we're changed not externally by the law but internally from, from the inside outwards. The failure of Israel at the end of Ezra, indeed at the end of the Old Testament, points us to the the need for forgiveness and a new heart that comes through Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the first implication. Secondly, the the passage has got very obvious implications for for marriage and uh, particularly for Christians who are single uh, and who are considering getting married. So can I just speak for a moment to the single people amongst us who might like to get married at some stage? Everyone else, you can read your bulletins or whatever. What's it saying? Well, those singles amongst us here, the obvious implication of this is that when you're looking for someone to get married to, you look for someone who knows and loves and trusts and serves the Lord Jesus Christ? You're looking for you look for someone who has a relationship with the true God. Uh, what I'm saying is, let me put it simply: Christians should marry Christians. Does that make sense? All right. uh, because for a Christian to deliberately decide. To share their life and to build a family uh, with someone who does not share their relationship with God has got massive lifetime implications. And I know it's tempting sometimes. Maybe you think that uh, you're single and uh, you haven't really met a Christian single that uh, you kind of connect with and maybe you're getting on and you're wondering about uh, you know how long is this going to continue and then some a non-christian person who is a very nice person uh, comes your way and uh, you, you become friendly with them and one thing leads to another and uh, you think well maybe this is the person I should be sharing my life with don't do it Don't do it. Uh, Trust in God that either he will give you the person he has planned for you or that he will give you the ability to live uh, fruitfully as a single Christian person. Because it's not only disobedient to God, disobedient to his word, but it it can lead uh, to a life of spiritual frustration, Uh, a life of unfruitfulness in gospel ministry. And uh, the hard reality is that it can often mean that you, you become lured away from God yourself. Take the warnings from the Old Testament, warning from Solomon, warning from many others. It's not worth it. But there are, of course, many godly Christians who find themselves in the state of life where they are already married uh, and they're married to someone who is not a Christian. And this, of course, happens for a variety of reasons. Um, Sometimes it's because uh, they were Christians at the time and they knew the person was not a Christian and they knew it was wrong to marry someone who's not a Christian, but they decided to marry the person in any case. And uh, down the track, they've still clung on to their relationship with God, but they've realized that it was a wrong thing to do. Uh, one lady I know was a very, very godly lady who was in that situation, and she was an old, much much older than myself, and she said to me one day, she said, Scott, the worst mistake I ever made in my life was I married a man who didn't love the Lord Jesus Christ. Lovely man. Uh, great guy, and I still love him, and committed to him as his wife, that was a huge mistake. Or it might be that um, uh, the person uh, has come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ themselves after they were married, and their, their spouse has not come to faith in Christ yet. Or it may be that they were a Christian before marriage, but they were just not taught well in their church. They didn't didn't have sermons from the book of Ezra and uh, other passages. They didn't know. Or it may be that uh, when they married, they had good reason to believe that their spouse was a Christian. Uh, But uh, now, uh, years into the marriage, they find out that that person actually no longer uh, loves and serves the Lord Jesus and possibly never did. So what does God, God's word say to those of us who are in that situation? Well, let me say firstly that it's very different from Israel in Ezra's day and uh, when they just sent the non-believers back home. Uh, that That's uh, the, in the New Testament in uh, passages such as 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 if you want to write that down if uh, you're a note taker, 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 1 to 6 or 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 12 through to 14 uh, in passages such as that Christians who are married to non-Christians are really encouraged to um, uh, to be faithful in that marriage uh, encouraged to, uh, to really work Hard at their at their own relationship with God, as difficult as that may be, uh, and to to win over their husband or their wife uh, to faith in Christ, uh, not just with words, but with um, with the godliness of their life, and with their prayers, and with the support of others who are part of God's family as well. Indeed, uh, in our own church family life. We have seen uh, God's blessing and the fruit uh, which has grown from people in that situation following God's word and in a godly way uh, seeking to win over their spouse. It may not happen overnight. It may take a long time. But be faithful and be encouraged in what God's, God's word says on this. Now, finally, the, the and I'll just wrap this up very quickly, the clear message of this passage is that God wants his church to be holy. That's the message. Uh, not to compromise on sin, not to tolerate sin, but to expose it and to repent of it. Church discipline is not a very... Popular thing in contemporary churches uh, where the ethos seems to be that uh, just to tolerate sin, uh, not to uh, rock the boat, uh, not to cause problems, but that's not the biblical approach. And the reason? Because the holiness of God is at stake the holiness of his church, and because a little bit of yeast, just a little bit, uh, works its way through the whole batch of dough. Let's pray.